I've been uh, preparing this sermon for a while now in Galatians. As you study the word, we're, we're exegeting this, this word, this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Word by word, verse by verse. <clears throat> Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians because he loved these people. As a new believer, and I was reading in the New Testament the things that Paul wrote, I thought he was kind of a grumpy guy, kind of rough. He wasn't trying to win anybody's friendship or be their pal. But Paul exercised love that we should really know and understand. Like our love for one another, we would tell each other the truth. There's some incredible good words that we use, exhort, edify, encourage. Paul used a lot of those words by definition because of the people that he was sharing the gospel with because he loved them. Like I love you, my brothers and sisters. As I, as I exegeted these words, I, I wrote down the, the, all the pearls and the diamonds and the rubies that I could find to share with you. It's, it's very exciting. When you start a study in the Bible today with the information that we have, it's like, it's like going down into the caverns and there's just unlimited trails you can go on and information that's it's so vast. If I told you everything, we probably would have sent out an email this week for you to pack a lunch because we're going to be here till 8 o'clock tonight but I promise I'll try and keep it closer to 3 o'clock because there's lots. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you for this time we can look at your word. Encourage one another, edify and exhort. May this time together be a time of strengthening, lifting up, May we take this with us throughout the week as it's seared in our hearts that we know this is the word of God and you've given to us to freely. You've charged me as a servant to handle this word carefully. Yes, Lord, I tremble when I handle your word. It's a serious thing to not do it correctly. But because we've been given the opportunity, we'll do this this day in your house will bring this message joyfully, willingly, and intentionally to glorify you. I praise you for this time, Father. Amen. I titled this sermon called, There is Only One Gospel. You might have heard that before. But it's actually pretty critical because in a day and age where we live today where there are so many people on the radio, on TV, in books, writing books, inviting you to conferences and different events, it's very easy to get swayed to a different gospel. 
And I hope and pray that you study your Bible daily to know your true gospel is the reason why we live and breathe. We're here today by the grace of God. Tim said in his prayer, he's very merciful. He sustains us. Every breath we take is from him. This letter is from Paul. It's called Galatians. And we're going to look at chapter 1, if you want to turn in your Bibles, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I know that sounds like a lot of verses, but I went through all of those verses to find those diamonds and rubies and pearls to share with you. And I hope you cling to it. So I'm going to read this first before we dig into it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We, even if we are, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9 says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of man, or of, am I seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have, would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that we preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But he who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him 15 days. So this letter to the Galatians was written around the year A.D. 48 to 55 by the Apostle Paul, perhaps with contributions from some of his fellow missionaries. Paul had an important message to give them, and he was very concerned about their spiritual well-being. This letter explains who Paul is, and his position of authority. A strong warning for false teachers and their consequences. The hope that we cling to daily 
and the transformative work that God did in him to become the apostle that we are so familiar with today. So let's begin at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So who was Paul? Formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ and was a prominent figure in the growth of the early church. Something I asked was, what was his name? And when did he change it? He didn't really change. Paul was his Roman name, and Saul was his Jewish name. So as, Jewish, as a Jewish Sanhedrin, he was called Saul. But as a Roman citizen, he was called Paul, and he was an apostle. If we look at the word apostle in the first verse, how do you recognize a legitimate apostle? Well, we found the definition of apostle, one sent on a mission. That is one whom God has sent on an errand or with a message. An apostle is accountable to his sender and carries the authority of his sender. An apostleship is the office that an apostle holds. Jesus Christ himself had an apostleship. He wears apostle as one of his descriptive titles in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. He was sent to earth by the Heavenly Father with God's authoritative message, which he faithfully delivered. In, uh, you can read it in John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. While Jesus was here on earth, he personally selected from his many followers 12 men and gave them an apostleship, special responsibility to receive and spread his message after he returned to heaven. These chosen and sent ones were his apostles. During the time Jesus was training them, he did not explain the criteria that he used to choose them. One of the twelve was Judas Iscariot, who, everybody knows, betrayed him to his enemies. In agony of conscience, Judas hanged himself, as Matthew 27, 5 tells us. Thus, when Jesus returned to heaven, he left behind only eleven apostles. Some days later, the remaining apostles were in Jerusalem, praying with Jesus' mother his brothers, and other believers. The group totaled about 120. Simon Peter addressed the group and told them that, told them that in Psalm 69.25, they predicted Judas' desertion, and Psalm 109, verse 8, predicted that the defectors placed among the apostles would be filled. The apostleship must fall to someone else. Peter proposed choosing a new apostle and set the qualifications. Not everyone could be considered for an apostleship. Candidates needed to have been with Jesus during the whole three years that Jesus was among them. That is, he needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus' baptism when the Heavenly Father validated Jesus' person and work. He needed to have heard Jesus' life-changing teaching and been present to see his healings and other miracles. He needed to have witnessed Jesus' sacrifice, himself on the cross, and to have Jesus walk, talk, and eat among the disciples again after his resurrection. These were the pivotal facts of Jesus' life, the heart of the message. They were to teach, and personal witnesses were required to verify the truth of the good news. We as believers are also called to preach the good news. This is not optional. We as believers need to be prepared to share the gospel in and out of season. The best method to be prepared for our daily service is to be in the Word of God daily and in prayer and meditation. We also need to be preached to, and we need to hear the gospel on a regular basis. We also need one another. 
for encouragement, edification, exhortation, and keeping one another accountable. We can certainly encourage one another when we attend Sunday school. That's a safe place to learn from one another on how we can be effective and glorify God in our daily lives. So please come and join us on Sunday. It's very enlightening. So this is how the apostles chose a new apostle after Judas. The prayer group in Jerusalem nominated two who met these qualifications for apostleship, Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias. Then the disciples asked God to guide them on how to know which one was to fill the post. Using a method of determining God's will that was common at that time, they cast lots, thus giving God freedom to make his choice clear. The lot fell to Matthias, and he became the twelfth apostle. So casting lots sometimes was drawing different lengths of straws or certain stones were picked or a form of some kind of a dice might have been rolled. But this was the method they used. It was a tough decision. But that way they didn't make the decision. They knew that whatever was picked, it was by God. So here's what the Bible says. Not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Sorry, I skipped ahead here. Then the disciples asked God to guide them on how to know which one was to fill the post. Using a method of determining God's will that was common at the time, they cast lots, thus giving God freedom to make his choice clear. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he became the twelfth apostle. So there are was 12 apostles. Where did Paul come from? And where did he get this apostle status? Well, here's what the Bible says. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If it says not from men, nor, not from men, nor man, okay, so why did Paul need to clear this up? Well, false teachers are accusing Paul of commissioning himself as an apostle. Being noted as an intelligent apostleship would, illegitimate apostleship would discredit his preaching of the gospel and his missionary efforts. So Paul distinguishes himself from the false teachers by emphasizing that God and Christ, not humans, sent him as an apostle. In verse 2, it says, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. What value does it have for Paul to mention and all the brothers with me? Paul mentions his co-workers at the beginning of his letters. Paul refers to several believers without naming specific individuals, perhaps to highlight the strong support he had from the community of believers. Then Paul says in his letter, to the churches of Galatia. Because this letter was to the church of Galatia, what do we know about Galatia? Galatia was a region in Central Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it was also Paul's first missionary journey. Paul visited several cities in the region of Galatia during his missionary journeys. While the number of churches Paul addresses in Galatians is unknown, the letter suggests they were predominantly Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. The exact location of Galatia remains uncertain. It might refer to the territory of North Central Asia Minor inhabited by the Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. 
beginning in the 3rd century B.C., or the southern area of Asia Minor that Paul visited during his first missionary journey, because this was a letter to the churches of Galatia, not one specific single church, and Galatia wasn't a city or a town, it was an area uh, often referred to as uh, Asia Minor. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's look at grace to you and peace. This brief greeting summarizes Paul's gospel message. It is God's work through Christ on our behalf that brings us into a harmonious relationship with God and one another. Paul uses this greeting in his letters in Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians. The Greek word, shatters which is grace, is a replacement for the standard Greek term chairo. It's spelled C-H-A-I-R-O, but it's pronounced chairo. Amazingly, I found a thing on the internet that tells you how to pronounce words. It might be spelt this way, but this is how it sounds. And they found people who know how to actually say it. So I told you I found some diamonds and rubies and pearls for you. This is one. This word is absolutely amazing. This is single-handedly the only word, well, there's no other word that describes it. It is so rich. When I tell you about it, you'll probably cry because I've never heard anything like this. It is amazing. So you can practice this week, and we'll check next Sunday how you made out with Jairo because you've got to have that little <laughs> in there to make it fly. Practice. And Paul used it as a greeting. The Greek word Irene, which means peace, is taken from the Hebrew term shalom. Peace, conveying the idea of wholeness. We have a sister here named Irene. But that's not how you spell it here, sis. Sorry. It's spelt uh, E-I-R-E-N-E. Either way, it means peace, and it's a beautiful word. Hiero, the meaning of this word, the C is silent, Hiero. But this word Hiero is much more than we think. It's a magnificent greeting reserved for true followers of Christ. Not to be wasted foolishly or for any small reason. You would never use this this word greeting for a heretic or some left-wing liberal who didn't preach the true gospel. It was a word of tremendous blessing by celebrating the atmosphere of rejoicing in God's magnificent blessing. This word was used to describe what was said when the name of a believer was written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what's, that's what's going on when they say, 10,000 legions of angels in heaven rejoiced because a new believer had their name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's that, that's that rejoicing and anticipation that's coming out of that, that phrase, hiero. When somebody says that to you, that's an incredible blessing. So I wanted to share that with you because when I read that, it, 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 I was elated. That, that's, that, I can't even describe this word. It's so incredible. This word was used to describe what was said when the name of believer was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Hiero. It is the word used to describe the rejoicing that happens at that event. 
According to Jesus, a person should rejoice hiero, at one's name being written in heaven. Luke 10, verse 20 is where we see that. Jesus comforted his disciples on the night of his betrayal, telling them that he would be taken away, but they would see him again. And when they saw him, their grief would turn to hiero. That's incredible joy. John 16, verses 16 to 22 is where we refer to that scripture. Hiero often will result in a response of worship. It represents the proper attitude following the culmination of a sequence of events ending in praise, suggesting the praise not only expresses hiero, but also completes the enjoyment that is experienced. There is no other word to describe this type of rejoicing, and only God can provide that for his believers. And it's amazing. Let's go to verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The words, gave himself for our sins, refers to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. In the present evil age, Jewish people divided history into two major sections. The present age in which God's rule is not fully established and evil persists, and the coming age, when God will complete his rule as king. For the Christians, the sacrificial death of Christ enables believers to live under God's rule in the present age. For this reason and others, the deeds Paul affiliates with the flesh, sinful acts, are inappropriate for the people of God. While this is the only occurrence of present evil age in Paul's letters, its meaning is similar to this age and the world. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, To whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. We don't even have to guess who all the glory belongs to, do we? What does glory forever and ever, amen mean? Explain. Let's explain this from Paul's letter. It expresses the conviction that God is worthy of our unending adoration and worship. The word amen, meaning so be it, is used to show agreement or endorsement of what is said about God and amongst the brethren. When we say amen, that means we agree with what's being said or preached. But with the Galatians, there was no cause for thanksgiving. They have turned to a different gospel. And this is what Paul wrote about to the Galatians church. Verse 6 reveals this. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. There's a note here in verse 6, the one who called you refers to God, not Paul. So Paul was pointing out that there are some false teachers out there, and they needed to be involved with that. And they need to be aware of their environment. Verse 7 says, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Some who trouble you. The false teachers in Galatia probably presented their message as the true understanding of the gospel, like many false teachers and manipulators do. According to Paul, these teachers have done more harm than good. Can you think of any examples today of these false teachers? Yes, I know you can. All of Paul's descriptions of them are negative. Verse 7, chapter 5, verse 10. 
The identity of these teachers and their affiliation with the leaders of the Church of Jerusalem remains uncertain. They probably are Judaizers. The term Judaizer refers to people who zealously promote a Jewish lifestyle. According to the law and Jewish tradition, in this case, they were persuading the Galatians to practice circumcision, as well as observe food laws and certain calendar cycles. These are what we call today works-based religions. These religions we see today talk about Jesus, but require a certain amount of work to ensure your salvation. And that effort itself is stealing God's glory. Jesus paid it all. We cannot add one thing to the work done on the cross. Jonah 2.9 reminds us that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a free gift given to the believer through faith by grace. And even that faith is from God so that no one may boast. The warning goes on in verse 8. But even if I, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In this verse 1-8, even if we or an angel, Paul probably writes hypothetically here, neither he nor an angel from heaven would ever proclaim a different gospel. So what happens to those who preach a different gospel? Well, there's a word right here to explain what happens. Accursed. The Greek word used here, anathema, refers to putting someone under God's judgment. Since the gospel is the message of God's salvation, God will punish those who distort it. When you're a pastor or a teacher or a person who preaches the word of God, you're charged with handling the word of God very carefully. It is a serious matter to be foolish with the word of God or twist it to satisfy anything that isn't true. A mistake is one thing, but manipulation is quite another. Here's another way to describe the word accursed. Anathema means to be set apart, but not like holiness. Specifically, it means cursed by God. For example, those who do not have salvation through Christ, or the Hebrew word, Chetum, referring to objects devoted by God for destruction. Not like Chetum, this is Chetum, C-H-E-R-E-M. Spelling matters. Paul uses this word anathema to most referencing the divine judgment that will fall on those separated from Christ for eternity. Separated from Christ's glory and love, but not separated from God's wrath. Paul affirms it again in verse 9. Verse 9 says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When somebody says something twice in the Bible, it's because they really want to emphasize or make their point very clear. It would be like raising your voice to be heard. Another example of this is in John 5, 24, when Jesus says, Verily, verily. Or in Revelation 8, 13, Then I looked and heard an angel crying with a loud voice as he flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe. Woe to those who dwell on the earth. Not W-O-A-H, like your woe and your donkey down. This is woe. A warning. This, is, this was a way for the writer to emphasize a word or a statement today because today we have no way of knowing if they raised their voice to make their point or what the emotional state of the word was. 
So now let's look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We see that in verse 10, seeking to please. Paul was being accused of easing the requirements of obedience to the law for Gentile believers, non-Jewish people who believed in Jesus. That would be us. For example, while circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, as we see in Genesis 17, Paul did not require that Gentile believers be circumcised. This made his message more appealing to Gentiles while opening him to the charge of seeking to appease people. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, Paul ac Paul's accusers probably claimed that his in independence from the leaders at Jerusalem was made, made him a rogue minister. Paul challenges this assessment. He says that despite his independence, the leaders at Jerusalem supported his call and gospel, confirming the legitimacy of his ministry. So what leader supported Paul in Jerusalem? Well, that would be Barnabas, whose name was formerly Joseph, not, not only a Levite, but an exemplary follower of Jesus in Jerusalem, who acts as an intermediary between the newly converted Paul and the other disciples in his native city. In Acts 9.26, when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him because his reputation as a persecutor, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27 says that Barnabas took him, brought him into the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and now in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Quite a transformation, a huge change. Paul explains where his gospel came from in verse 11. For I would have, you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What does Paul mean? Not man's gospel or of human origin. Paul began the letter with a defense of his apostleship. It came from God, not people. His argument here is simple, similar, but this time it's not about himself, but his gospel. In verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, he says, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Paul explained at the beginning of his letter, this was completely different for Paul and his reputation as Saul. Paul knew the law better than most. He was respected and revered in the Sanhedrin. He knew the difference between revelation and information. The accusers knew parts of the law, but they never knew the law like Paul did. And they certainly did not hear God on the road to Damascus. He goes on in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in, Ju in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Verse 13, Paul says, Paul had a former way of life, but his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was a strict Jew and zealous opponent of Christianity. He was against Christianity, or sometimes they were called people of the way. This title of the followers comes from Jesus' word in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They became people of the way, and Paul was going to destroy them. Thankfully, God changed the direction of Paul's life and gave him a higher purpose. To preach the gospel, 
to glorify God for the rest of his life. So Paul's zeal changed from destruction to restoration. Praise God for that. So let me ask you a question. Did you have a former way of life? I sure did. It's often part of someone's testimony. When we share our testimony, we usually share a bit of our condition before God revealed himself to us. Before we were redeemed, we were lost. We were on the road to destruction. Even Paul, the great apostle, the greatest evangelist of all time, a major writer of the New Testament, that same Paul was prepared for destruction. But God in his mercy called Paul on the road to Damascus. And by special revelation, Paul was regenerated, redeemed, born again. And it was undeniable. Paul preached until his death because God opened his eyes permanently and Paul could not undo what he saw or heard. Are you born again? Have you heard the gospel that Paul preached? Do you know about how God came down incarnate as a baby, born a virgin birth that was predicted way in the past by ancient writers of the Bible? That he, Jesus, lived a blameless life on earth? He never sinned, ever. And yet, he was falsely accused and died a horrific death on a Roman cross, which was also written way before it happened by biblical writers in the Old Testament. And then from the accounts of many, many witnesses, Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew tells us what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. That the temple curtain tore from the top to the bottom. Do you know what a temple curtain is made out of? One inch thick blue felt, like an old saddle blanket on a horse. You can't tear that stuff. You can hardly cut it with a really sharp knife. That stuff is heavy. And this temple curtain wasn't one feet by two feet. It was 20 feet tall maybe, 40 feet wide. It tore from the top down. You could see somebody, a couple guys grabbing the bottom and trying to pull and tear it this way, but it tore from the top down. That was an amazing thing to see all by itself. But amazing enough was this. The graves opened up. Matthew tells us the graves opened up and dead people were walking around completely alive again. Now if that didn't rattle your cage, I don't, I don't know what would. That's pretty incredible to know somebody that you know you went to their funeral and you watched them put them in the ground. And on that day, that guy was walking around. And you knew him. The tomb was empty. Jesus defeated death. And you can too. That's the good news. Now that you've heard the gospel, and you know what it is, the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? 
Saved from God's coming wrath. God will not tolerate this rebellion of mankind forever. But he's a merciful God. Willing that none should perish. He is patient, merciful, and full of grace. This is the God we are worshiping today in this very place. Worshiping with our singing. Worshiping with our prayers. Worshiping with our tithes and offering. If God has opened your eyes and you understand what, he, what was just said, believe it. And tell everybody you know. Because it's all true. And it has been for over 2,023 years. This gospel message has not changed in that entire time. Verse 14. Paul continues to explain his past and what he was like. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Traditions handed down by my fathers refers to a Pharisaic tradition that likely included the Jewish laws as well as oral traditions concerning its interpretation. But here's the change. Paul now realized his calling, clearly. For when he who had sent me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace one who set me apart, verse 15 says, the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah described their callings in similar ways. Jeremiah 1.5 and Isaiah 49.1. This phrase signals that Paul's ministry is a continuation of God's work and voice in the world. A servant of the Most High God. Prophets and apostles both possessed authority to speak on God's behalf and remind their audience to live according to God's promises. Additionally, Paul assumed the role of a prophet by pronouncing a curse upon those who distort the gospel. But if we go back to verse 8 and remember the word accursed or anathema, set apart for destruction by God himself, distorting the gospel has serious consequences. This is Paul's warning to the church in the area of Galatia. They needed to pay attention to their environment. False teachers were preaching a different gospel. And Paul would have none of it and gave a strict warning. Verse 16 continues through. It says, Was well pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult anyone to reveal his son in me. The end of this phrase is often translated to me, but it's better understood as in me. Paul emphasizes that God chose him as an instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul did not need human approval of his gospel since God himself revealed his son and the gospel in him as we read about in Acts 26, verse 17, 20, and 23. Here Paul's use of the term son anticipates the transformation explained in Galatians 3, 4. Chapters 3 and 4. 
Believers are no longer slaves living under the law, but children living under promise. A nice change. Safe place to be. Children are safe with mom and dad. This is because they've been united with the Son through the Spirit of the Son. That's the change we need to be born again. United with the Son through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We belong to Christ. John 6, No one comes to me unless the Father who draws them gives them to me. And I will raise them up on the last days. Amen. Among the Gentiles, Paul directed his ministry primarily to the non-Jewish people. He considers his missionary work a, a fulfillment of what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about being a light to the Gentiles. According to Isaiah 49, Israel was meant to show God's character to the world so that all could know him. That's why we read the Old Testament and not just the New Testament. We need to read and study the Old Testament to really know the character of God. When the nation Israel failed in this call, Jesus assumed Israel's role as the suffering servant. And Paul views his ministry as a continuation of Jesus' work. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, explains that. And also, verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Arabia, in this context, the reference is most likely to the southeast area of Damascus called Nabatea. However, in Greco-Roman sources of this area, the term Arabia was used broadly, referring to a southern Canaan Israel, the northern Sinai and Midian. Nabatea, N-A-B-A-T-E-A, Nabatea. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. After three years, what happened in those three years? By specifying the length of time, Paul was offering support for his claim that the apostles did not teach him the gospel in Jerusalem. Rather, his revelation of the gospel came directly from Jesus Christ. The three years Paul mentions here approximates the time Jesus spent with the original 12 disciples by noting the number of Passovers in the life of Jesus and other chronological indicators. Jesus' ministry lasted three to three and a half years. In closing, Jesus began his ministry around the age of 30. We don't know much about those 30 years, but we'll have plenty of time and glory to learn about those first 30 years. He spent the next three and a half years revealing himself to many people, but specifically the 12 apostles we read about today. They were the eyewitnesses, the disciples, constantly learning from Jesus himself spending the whole three and a half years with him and witnessing his baptism. These were the requirements of being a disciple, as we read earlier. Aside from Judas, there was his replacement, Matthias. Now there are 12 disciples again. Paul became one later on, and according to the Bible, he was the last one. God's written word is complete and final. 
Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. As it is written in the last chapter of Revelation, with a strict warning not to add or subtract from what has been written. Well, I hope you uh, grasp some of those pearls of wisdom and those rubies and diamonds that I shared with you today. When you study the Word of God, it really clings to your heart. And I pray that you take it with you wherever you go this week. And be aware of those false teachers. There is only one gospel. And I pray you know that. I pray it's laminated in your heart. You know it emphatically and nobody could test you on it. They could test you all they wanted, but you wouldn't fail. That one gospel, sure and true. The hope we cling to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this day. We thank you so much for this time that you've given us. You've set this time aside for us to hear from you and hear your word. I pray this is embedded in our hearts richly. As we read your word, Lord, protect our hearts and our souls, trusting only what you have said, taking it with us wherever we go, sharing it with those around us, our neighbors, our friends, raising up our children from youth, discipling them, disciplining them in the word of God, being committed continuously and daily to glorifying you. You are a merciful Savior, and by your grace you've given us the faith we have to maintain, to hang on. This life is not easy, and we know there are many, many people suffering and many woes, but this is a temporary suffering, for our glory will be eternal, eternally with you in your glory. Haram, a time of rejoicing, unmeasurable rejoicing. Unable to purchase that, Lord, is a free gift from you. And I pray that everyone we hear, everyone we see and hear today in this place has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God, in your mercy, you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through these men. And I thank you for the work these apostles did. Till this very day, their work is standing. And your word is standing, holding us together keeping us from falling apart like tattered rags in the wind. You've given us a rock to cling to and a hope. Protect us, Lord, in our minds and our hearts. As we read your word, build us up and strengthen us. Let us go forth in courage, trusting that you are leading the way, providing for us opportunities. Again, we thank you and praise you, Lord, in this magnificent day and this time of, time of worship. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen. We do have a benediction. Would you just stand with me, please, as I read the benediction for you? I don't know if this is Josh's favorite, but I like it. Josh has favorite benedictions, and I love that. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus.
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.